Job 33, and there are 33 verses in this chapter. This is simply Elihu's speech, part two. Elihu's speech, a second part of it. Job 33, we'll begin our reading in verse number one, where the Bible says, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me, stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me, he counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks, he marketh all my paths. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed. Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto a man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's, he shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee wisdom. Our last look in the book of Job, we noticed Elihu, this fourth friend of Job's, uh, named Elihu. We looked at chapter number 32. 
Elihu was younger than his than Job and younger than his three friends, and he allowed them to finish speaking before he began speaking. In all of Job 32, you remember we said last week, he seemed to say throughout the whole chapter, I have something to say. And he began his speech in the 32nd chapter. Elihu's speech covers some six chapters in the book of Job, uh, thereby uh, in the scriptures. As Elihu began his speech, and I'll be brief with this, as he began his speech last week in verses 1 and 2, of the former chapter, Elihu's introduced. In verses 2 to 5, as Elihu stepped forward and began speaking, he's angry. He's angry with Job because Job claimed his uh, innocence of any sin, and also he questioned God and God's dealings with him. He's angry with Job's three friends. He sat there and listened to all of it. He's angry with them because they have, again, over and again, they have accused Job with no foundation for it. They have no evidence for their charges. Verses 6 to 9 of the previous chapters, he began his speech. He had shown restraint. We learned that because uh, he told us uh, why he had shown the restraint. He's a younger man than the others. Although he does express, at least in my language, he felt in verse number 7 of the previous chapter, uh, given the age and mileage on the men before him that is spoken, He just felt like they should have brought more to the table than just saying that, look, you've sinned. That's why you're suffering. You've you've offended God. Now he's offended at you. And then Elihu began his speech. Verse number 10, he desired the attention of Job and his friends. And verses 11 to 13, again, he says, I've listened to every one of you. That's Job and the three friends. And verse number 14, he says to the three friends, you have not been a voice You've not been a voice of reason. Verses 15 and 16, Job and his friends are amazed, and they begin listening to Elihu. You remember that word amazed when it was translated into the king's English? didn't always mean what we think it would mean. In other words, they were defeated. Job could not convince his three friends. The three friends could not convince Job to make a confession of his sin. And so now they're going to listen to Elihu. Maybe he has some answers. Then uh, Job and his friends, they begin listening. Verses 17 to 20, you remember Elihu basically said, I feel as though I'm going to burst. I need to get this off my chest. And then he claimed, as he begins speaking, that he would show no favoritism. You remember we we closed and we, we touched on this throughout the book of Job. Job's three friends spoke of suffering as only, uh, only as punishment. The only reason why you would get uh, sick or injured in any way, according to these guys, is Job is getting his just dues. But suffering doesn't have to be penal. Sometimes suffering is preventative. We mentioned 2 Corinthians 12. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh that his ego might not get the better of him, and that he might not feel himself so entitled. After all, he'd been called up into the third heaven. Uh, suffering may be for discipline. We refer to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, John 15, verse number 2. Suffering may be to develop our character. And then in all of it, no matter what the suffering is for, we see the love of God as he conforms us in it to be conformed to the image of his son. So tonight, Elihu continues, and we're going to look at what he, what he has to say in this particular chapter. It is worth noting that Elihu will... 
uh, remind us when life uh, is very troubling and unsettled, God is still at work and God is still speaking. I have either spoken on the telephone or sat with people before service or after service or uh, maybe in a home and someone would say, but I just don't feel. And we don't base our walk with Christ on what we feel. Life don't always feel good. And we don't always, and I hope most of the time, don't um, buy into what Dr. Phil with his fraud in psychology would have to say about our lives. But um, we rest in the Word of God and the teachings of it. And, but Elihu states that God is speaking to me. And I, now, this is interesting, so I want to say a word about it. Then we're going to work our way uh, briefly through the text. And I'll give you some divisions to the chapter. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. In our day, this would seem a bit unusual. Have you ever, have you ever been on the job? Or have you ever been around the church service and somebody talk about dreams they're having? And... And then they'll try to justify their dreams by laying them alongside the Word of God. If the Word of God be true and your dreams are lining up, you didn't need your dream. And God has spoken in days gone by in dreams, but he does that no longer in our day. And it is because we have the Word of God. But notice what he has to say, verses 13 through 15. Uh, the Bible says, Why dost thou strive against him? This is Elihu speaking to Job, for he giveth not account of any of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, and slumberings upon the bed. Uh, the word of God was incomplete, of course, at this time. Some believe Job to be the penman. I believe, I think most of you would Believe about everybody I know believes that the book of Job is the oldest piece of literature, intact piece of literature uh, in the world. And it's the oldest book of the Bible. Some believe Job penned the book of Job. Others believe it was Moses that penned the book of Job. And then still there are other speculations that some have offered. But the Bible was incomplete during this time. And until the canon of the scripture uh, would be completed... And it was completed with the amen at the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then God would speak in various manners throughout the word of God. As a matter of fact, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, listen to the verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's. And so the book of Hebrews centers around how God is spoken and Christ is better throughout the book of Hebrews. But how has God spoken according to the penman of the book of Hebrews at sundry times and in divers manners? A number of ways that we have evidence of that he has spoken in Scripture. You remember he spoke in an audible voice. You remember he spoke to Adam in an audible voice. God spoke to him and he heard with the ear, with the hearing of the ear. As God came and spoke to him. You'll remember in the New Testament, the Father speaks twice in the Gospels in an audible voice. At the baptism of Christ, we've spoken of that recently on Sundays. And then at Mount Hermon, uh, Holly and I were speaking about she and Celia Beth are going to the Holy Land here before long. 
And I was saying just a word or two about the mouth of the Jordan. When the Jordan first starts, it's at the base of Mount Hermon. And it's clear as clear can be. Sometimes you may see pictures of a mountain stream, and it's just crystal clear water, spring-fed and pushed. And so it is at the mouth of the Jordan River. The further you get away from the source, the muddier it gets. There's a lot of truth could be learned from that. The further away you get from God, the muddier your mind and heart and spirit will get. But, but nevertheless, God spoke at Mount Hermon when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John as Elijah and Moses joined him, readying him for his exodus. Or in other words, his crucifixion. Um, it was there at the mouth of the Jordan and there at Mount Hermon. And these two ladies will get to stand there in a few short weeks and see that mountain where Christ was transfigured before the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They were so privileged to see that. God has spoken in days gone by in an audible voice. God at various times has spoken through angels, right? We learned that in the Old Testament. And then before Christ is born, then after he's born, God would use angels to speak. God would speak to Elijah in a still, small voice. 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. And I'm convinced when he speaks to you, and it's anything of substance, that's how he's going to speak to you. As a matter of fact, I referred to that on Sunday, that particular experience. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. But he was in the still, small voice. And I think I, well, I may have been the Bible Institute last Thursday night teaching. But when revival, if it comes in your life or in mine or in the life of our church as a congregation, it probably is going to look a whole lot different than we think that revival ought to look. There'll be a brokenness about the people. It always has been when revival has broken out. When God moves, he humbles us. When God makes himself known, he also reveals us to ourselves. And there may be a, a bit of fervency and uh, on a different frequency, if you will, than what we've been conditioned to believe. Now, we may shout. Thank God for a shout. Thank God we can shout. We have something to shout over and someone to shout over. But I'm telling you, when God moves on people's hearts in Scripture, uh, they are very humbled. And we're missing that in our day. God spoke through an animal in the Old Testament, Balaam's ass. You remember Balaam was trying to urge the beast of burden on. And he stopped and he turned around and he said, why do you beat me these three times? Um, the old mule had more sense than the, than the false prophet did. And had more sense about it and, than did Balaam. He has spoken through dreams. Two examples, one from the old, one from the new. He spoke through Joseph, uh, spoke to Joseph through dreams, right, in the Old Testament. And then as we considered Joseph, um, who's the husband of Mary, of whom Christ was born. He also spoke to Joseph, that Joseph, that New Testament Joseph, through dreams. He spoke through visions. Case in point, you remember in Acts chapter number 10, Simon Peter was straight as an arrow. He wasn't going to touch nor go to anybody that's unclean. You remember that? Then he saw the vision where the um, unclean animals are let down in the, in the air. And 
And God told him, said, take and eat. He said, no, nah, no, Lord. He said, those are unclean. He said, what I pronounce clean, don't call it unclean. And he's raiding Peter's heart to go to what was considered an unclean uh, people, and that being Gentile people. And he would go to the house of Cornelius. He spoke through theophanies, right? A theophany might be better called a Christophany. Old Testament appearances of Christ. Uh, we believe that's what's taken place in Exodus 3 when God called Moses through the burning bush. He has spoken through Christ as we just read from Hebrews 1, verse number 2. And he speaks through the Bible. He speaks through the Word of God. And so in verses 13, 14, and 15, Elihu is stating to, to Job that God is speaking in his day. And then Elihu also stated that God speaks through providential circumstances in our lives. And these set of circumstances in Job's life is the circumstances of his sufferings, his trials. In verse number 19, you notice of our chapter tonight. In verse number 19, he writes or he says, and it is recorded, this is Elihu speaking to Job, he is chastened also with pain. He said, God speaking, Job, in your pain. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain that were chastened. It's another word for instructed. In other words, God is instructing you, Job. C.S. Lewis, the penman, who's not been gone from us that many decades, C.S. Lewis has often been quoted by preachers through the years when he said in one of his writings, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And trials often are doorways into which we, we draw nigh to God and we listen to his word. And, and God would enhance our walk with him. We've often heard the questions, right? Does sickness, does suffering, uh, is anybody saved because of that? Or sickness or suffering, uh, are the saints sanctified by that? I want to address those two questions. I thought about that today. First of all, is this business of, of sickness or suffering for a sinner, uh, is he saved through that? And God uses the gospel to save the sinner. But God very well may lay a man on his back and deal with that man and make him ponder eternal matters. God providentially may place him on his, on his back and let him think about heaven and hell and how nigh that, that he is to eternity. And he may, in those moments, come to Christ. But what about sanctifying the, the saint? Does God use sickness and suffering? You've heard the testimonies of some who have said that uh, in a ditch, upside down in a pickup truck, God reminded me, God chastened me, God got my attention. I've heard people talk about the chastening of God and then walk straight uh, back into where, where they just came from. Uh, that's not much chastening. That's not much correction and instructing from God, is it? Uh, when... When, uh, when, the, when the pre-incarnate Christ would wrestle with Jacob through the night, when he got up and left that day, Jacob had a limp with him the rest of the days of his life. Now, I said to you way back months ago, the book of Job does not lend itself too well to expository preaching. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult in some of these chapters. This is one of them. It's pretty difficult to get the pulse of the chapter. Um, if you read after everybody and, and what have you, I was thinking about sitting at my desk. I pushed back today, and um, 
I've got all kind of material that I can read on any book of the Bible. I think I've got 22, 23 volumes on Job alone. I've got about 12 multi-volume sets, anywhere from six volumes. It covers the whole Bible to uh, about 40 volumes in a set. I've got a number of one volume, probably a dozen one volumes, such as Matthew Henry or Adam Clark or some of those men. It's been noted through the years. And I was talking with a dear brother who preached through the book of Job back some years ago. Um, He's a noted brother out on the East Coast, and we were talking during the Taylorsville camp meeting last year. And I asked him, I said, who did you like on Job? He said, I didn't like anybody all the way through. He said, no two agree all the way through. And you know that's the truth. You come to this 33rd chapter, either they're going to put Elihu and everybody else in the ditch, or they're going to pick him up out of the ditch and send him in a better way. Elihu has got a lot to say in this chapter Now, first thing he does, and the last thing he does in this chapter, of course, you know when the Bible was pinned down, there were no chapter and verse divisions. Man has given the Bible uh, chapter and verse divisions. But we're taking this a chapter at a time through Elihu's speech, and he declares in the first part of this chapter, and he declares in the last part of this chapter that he's fit, and he's very fair in what he's about to say. He doesn't always get everything right. But he does get some things right here in this chapter. Now, he declares how that he'll be fair, verses 1 to 7. Then at the close of the chapter, verses 31 to 33, let's read these verses, 1 to 7. We'll say very little about them. He says, Wherefore, Job, beginning in verse 1, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart. And my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. In other words, Job, rebut this. Argue this. State your feelings against this. He says, stand up. Verse number 6. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. In other words, he's speaking as a mouthpiece here. I also am formed out of the clay. Just as you are. He says he's a man, though he be a young man. Verse number 7. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid. In other words, I'm not going to speak down to you, Job, although he will do a bit of that before he finishes his speech. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Job, these other boys have beat you down. And Job, that's not my intent as I speak to you just now. Now notice how he closes this chapter. 31 to 33, mark well, O Job, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee wisdom. You'll move with me now to verses. He's simply saying that he's going to be fair in his approach to Job. You remember last chapter in verse number 14, he he told Job, he said, I'm not going to throw at you what these three have thrown at you. I'm coming at you from a different angle. As I've sat here and listened to the back and forth. Verses 8 through 13. You remember we read these verses last week as well. Here, Elihu is going to quote Job, uh, quote his own words back to him. Verses 8 through 13. Uh, Job is uh, committed folly. In verses 8 and 9, 
That's what he's going to say to him because he is... He has claimed himself to be without sin. Elihu's pointing this out to Job. Look at verses 8 and 9. As he's speaking to Job in verse 8, he says, Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing. In other words, I heard you, Job. You said this. And I have heard the voice of thy words saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. We've learned by this point in the book of Job, his arguments with his friends. He's a bit self-righteous. Um, he's that way all the way through the book of Job. Just a bit self-righteous as he would argue himself innocent of what they have accused him of. Notice with me verses 10 and 11. Job commits now a double folly. You say, how does he do that? Well, he's going to accuse, accuse God. He questions God and how God's dealt with him. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, behold, he said, Job, you said this now out of your mouth. You said, behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He said, you you said that, Job. And you also said, verse 11, he putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. The point he's making here is, I know these three men have accused you of what what they think you have done. Job, I don't know if you've done anything. But he said, I know your attitude toward God's all fouled up. And you're fixing to be in a mess. And he's addressing that. You know right here is the battleground for me, and it is for you. Do you know the devil will put something in there that does not exist? And did you know that he'll turn around and make one problem look like a thousand? He'll make something that is very simple into something in your mind that looks complex. He said, Job, he said, he said forget about these guys and what they've said to you. He said, what you're saying about God is all fouled up. He said, God's not your enemy, Job. These guys may be your enemies. Your neighbors may be your enemies. But your God is not your enemy. Some child of God ought to say, hip, hip, hooray tonight. That God is not our enemy. We are sons of God, little s. Because of the Son of God, big S. We who are nothing. Uh, Brother R.J. Wyman used to say this. I heard him say it, no telling it to times, in meetings through the years. He'd say, child of God, you're somebody headed someplace tonight. And we are. Thank God. He says, God's not your enemy. Y'all fouled up, Job. So Job committed folly in declaring himself without sin. Verse number 8 and 9, particularly verse 9. Verses 10 and 11, he's committed another folly in accusing God of dealing with him unjustly. And then Elihu states Job's folly to him, verses 12 and 13. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12, he says, Behold, in this thou art not just. He said, I will answer thee. I'm going to address this. He said, Job, you need to be reminded that God is greater than man. I looked the verses up and put them in my notes. That's the equivalent of when Isaiah would pen the words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are... They're beyond yours. That's what, that's what the young whippersnapper steps up and says to Job. He said, Job, you're losing sight of something here. He says, God is greater than man. He's not your enemy. Then in verse number 13, he says, Job, they've had fault in what they've said. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you've had fault in what you've said. 
And he says in, in, verse, in verse number 13, he says, now, you think God owes you an explanation, but he said, Job, let me remind you of another truth. And every child of God ought to know this. God owes none of us an explanation. Do you know that? God owes none of us an explanation. Look at verse 13. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. That's why I love so much when God finally begins. Everything turns in the book of Job after God speaks. Job said something to say. Job's wife said something to say. Satan has said something to say. Eliphaz has had something to say. Bildad's had something to say. Zophar has had something to say. Now Elihu's got something to say. Then when you move on over to chapter 13, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Then he's going to ask him, as Larry Winkler would put it, Where were you when God laid the mud seals of this world? God doesn't have to answer to anybody, any of us. He doesn't have to. As a matter of fact, who am I to question God? I know life can be unfair. Trust me, I do know that. I feel like most, if not all of you, know that. God is God, and beside him there is none other. And we'll never figure him out completely. What we know about the word of God, we can rest our, we can hang our hats, so to speak, on that. Where God has spoken, we speak. Where God has been silent, we remain silent. But God is God, friend. Well, Elihu points out, verses 14 through 30, he points out God's goodness in revealing himself. Look, if you will, he's revealed himself again through these dreams. Verses 14 to 18, just to read the verses. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep, sl- deep sleep falleth upon uh, men in slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Verses 19 to 22. He's revealed himself through sickness. Verses 19 to 22. He is chastened also with pain. In other words, again, instructed. We spoke of that a little earlier. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. And he says, God, uh, God is good, Job, even though you've lost this weight, you're, you're so weak, yet upon your bed of affliction, uh, in this ash heap, God is good to reveal himself. And he is, is he not? Has God ever given you a word in a dark moment? Um, has God ever given you a word when it seemed that uh, everything, uh, maybe it seemed that the heavens were brass when you prayed, and yet... You get, did get far from that experience, and God gave you a word that you could run on. Uh, I mentioned Moses and Christ speaking to him out of the burning bush. It's one of the many Christophanies, theophanies of the Old Testament. Um, has it ever occurred to you that God spoke there, and Moses ran for 40 years? 
somehow we think that, uh, well, yeah, God spoke to me last Sunday. Um, he needs to give me a new word today, and he will through his word. Don't misunderstand. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But if God's given you an assignment, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to update that assignment until he gets ready to update that assignment. You be what God's called you to be. Verse 23 through 30. Um, God also has revealed himself through a mediator. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel here in these verses. Of course, you know the last three verses. You remember we've already looked at them, so we won't look at them again. Job, as he did in the first seven verses, in the last three verses. Um, or Elihu, excuse me, as he spoke to Job, let him know, look, I'll be fair with you in my approach to you. Look, if you will, in verses 23 through 30. We'll look at verse 23 and 24. First, God has revealed himself through a mediator. The writer of Hebrews, we read from him a little earlier. God has spoken in these last days through his son, he said. Beautiful picture of the gospel here. He mentions one who would stand out above others and provide a ransom. Verse 23 and 24. There be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand. To show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. Christ is delivered. Christ is delivering. Christ will yet deliver those who trust him uh, from the pit and from the pitfalls of hell. He's done so through his sacrifice as our mediator. He's provided a ransom. It's what he said, Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Said the same in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul would write to his preacher boy Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom carries with it two implications. Number one, redemption. And number two, exaction. If you were taken hostage for a ransom in order to redeem you... Um, there must be an exaction of the payment demanded. And our darling Savior, the mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus himself, he has paid and satisfied the justice of God for our sins. He is our mediator. It's interesting to me there was no word of God in these days. And yet this young man knew enough to know that God had a mediator. God had somebody to go between. I glory in that, don't you? Thank God we're free tonight. Our mediator provides cleansing to the one once held captive. Look at verse number 25. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Could be a, and very likely is a picture of leprosy. When he talks about his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Leprosy in the Bible, of course, is a picture of sin, isn't it? The law of leprosy is found in Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. 
If a man was suspected to have leprosy, chapter number 13, he was to present himself to the priest. Chapter number 14, the book of Leviticus, he would be shut up behind a door for seven days. On the eighth day, eight being a number of new beginning in the word of God, on the eighth day he would present himself to the priest again. If he... If it was not leprosy, if the suspected area on his hand or arm or wherever, if it were gone, then he set free. And he would be pronounced clean to the community. If it was indeed leprosy, he would be expelled from the common population. The reason why is because leprosy, of course, again, it's a picture of sin. It was very contagious. Leprosy went deeper than the skin. Um, leprosy was a slow and sure death sentence. You would die from leprosy. There is a bit of leprosy in different places of the world. There are leper colonies. Brother Tommy Tillman, uh, his family now have ministries to the leper colonies. As a matter of fact, Brother Tommy, there were those that tried to discourage him from going um, to the first leper colony that he went to. He had been sternly instructed not to, not to have uh, any type contact with any of the lepers. And in Thailand, he, he was visiting one of those colonies. And uh, he would uh, go to visit them. And one particular man, of course, can, can you imagine, um, I had the privilege of, of bringing um, Nelson in his stroller through the threshold of the door this evening. Warren pulled up and let his family out under the awning. You know what would alter that little fellow's life all the days of his life if he had no human touch? Whether you realize it or not, one of the basic needs of any human being living is to be wanted, to be loved, to be wanted. If they so chose and they would not, they're not that kind of people. To not put their hands on that child. It would change his being all the days of his life. So you understand when Brother Tillman tried to witness to a leper and tell him that God loved him. And the leper challenged him. He challenged him not on God's love, but he challenged him on his love. Brother Tillman told him that God loved him and he did too. And he said, if you love me, you come in and sit down and talk to me in here. And he said, as he crossed the threshold, he said, God, you brought me here. And if I'm to have leprosy, so be it. If this is what you want out of me. But I want to win this man to you. And he said he went and he sat down and talked with the, the fellow for a little bit. Um, and said when he went to leave, said he pulled up close by him and put his hand on his back and said, I want to pray with you. And said the man just sobbed uncontrollably. Nobody had so much as laid a hand on him or shook his hand. Nobody had so much as patted him on the back in years. Um, and so here, he says, here in this verse, in verse number 25, he says, his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. It's like being born anew. Jesus would tell Nicodemus, born again. Just like Naaman, the five-star general of Syria, when he goes to Elisha, and Elisha wouldn't even so much as come out and look at him. But he sent his servant out to tell him, go down to Jordan. He said, that. He said you need, I need seven ducks in a muddy river. That's what I need out of you. 
He was offended. He is the man in the Syrian army. Everybody marches at his commands. The only one greater than him is the king. And he said, uh, his servant, he wasn't going to do it. His servant said, uh, well, if he'd have told you to go to the waters of Farpar or Banna, you'd have gone there. Why not the Jordan? Why not try it? And he goes down once, twice, thrice, four times, five times, six times. And he still has the death sentence of leprosy upon him. But then when he come up that seventh time, he's got a brand new lease on life. So it is with a child of God. Our past sins have been erased. Verse number 26, through our mediator, uh, will righteousness be imputed to the sinner. It's verse number 26. The Bible says, he shall pray unto God and he will be favorable unto man. Isn't that amazing? And he shall see his face with joy. For he will render unto man his righteousness. We thank God for that. I have uh, I've often quoted Vance Abner when he was saved. He, he, he would recall from time to time when he was saved. He said, didn't know anything. And he said, didn't even suspect anything. But he said, one thing I did know, and I've quoted him on this for over 30 years. He said, I knew I had the peace of God in my heart. Walked out different than I showed up that night. You know, I've seen people do that. That great exchange take place at an altar. Maybe in a revival service. Maybe in a Sunday service. Maybe after Sunday school. I'm thinking about a lady many years ago. She had wrestled and struggled. And right here on this side of the altar, when she was saved, God put a shout in her right there. Never had shouted. But she shouted that night. I'm telling you, right on that side of the altar... Went down broken, came up rejoicing. The joy of the Lord was upon her. In verse number 27 and 28, he says, Our mediator provides rescue from the pit. 27 and 28, he looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. In other words, if he'll confess his sin, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. And we rejoice in that, don't we? There are only two places in eternity. That's heaven and that's hell. Christ is the difference between the two places. Old-timers used to preach there's, there's a hell to shun and there's a heaven to gain. And that's the truth. And here if a man will confess his sin, confess that he's a sinner, and come to Christ, God forgives him and cleanses him. Then lastly, 29 and 30, um, This rescue has taken place time and time and time again. He says in 29 and 30, Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. Elihu's speech to Job, part two. Next time, guess which part we'll look at. Come on now, I know we're in Mississippi. We're not near what people around the rest of the country think we are. We'll look at chapter number um, 34 in our next look. If you'll stand, we'll dismiss in prayer.